Howdy everybody, I'm Rob. This is Figure of Speech, a podcast dedicated to the impact of forensics on everyday lives. Episode 2, AJ Moorhead. AJ, welcome in. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Hey, man. Nice to talk to you. Same to you. Hey, Thanks. let's talk about some speech, huh? Yeah. Can we talk about those drums first? <laughs> the drums? Yeah, your little o- opening song. Yeah, you like that? I love it. <laughs> it's did, pretty good, yeah. Did you do that? Or no, no, no. You found it somewhere? Uh, that's a band called Man Man. They're really good. You should check them out. Did they do speech? No. That would have been cool. But they're a great show. They're a great live show. <laughs> uh, AJ, uh, I, I want to say... Of all the people I'm aware of in the history of speech, AJ, you got to be in the top five. Top five all time, and I mean that. Uh, AJ, let me brag about you a little bit. AJ uh, not only has won multiple national titles, not only has he been in numerous, numerous final rounds, he's one of the only people, and in fact, the only person as far as I know, who has won a title in all three different divisions, both uh, limited prep, platform, and interpretation, especially in the same year. That's incredible, unheard of. And you are truly well-rounded. Man, you're one of the best speakers I know and best competitors I know. Thank you so much for being here, man. It's, it's really great having you. Yeah, it's great to be here. It's good to see you. It's been a while. It has been a little while. Me and Robert used to work together. Yeah, we did. At the, the middle, at Wilshire Academy Middle School. Yeah, man. And uh, we, uh, we churned them out. <laughs> I think the students were always scared of you because AJ's intense. And I, I always liked AJ's intensity. And uh, when the students weren't cracking it, I think you like threw a tissue box at a kid. And he was like, he threw a tissue box at me. I'm like, good. You should. You should fucking do what he's telling you to do. And a dictionary. Uh, <laughs> a dictionary what, and a tissue box. All right. <clears throat> not at once, but in succession. Okay. He, he still didn't get it. But uh, <laughs> what your listeners don't know is that uh, Robert is very, very tall, and I am not. So I have a lot to make up for. And so that's when, that's when the intensity uh, happens. Also because of inattentiveness. <laughs> yeah, just like... An- unwillingness to participate and and do their homework and uh you know move themselves forward yeah you gotta i mean if you you know your your parents are paying for you to be there so you gotta show out a little bit speaking of of parents and being young i want to talk about your beginning so when did you get started in competitive speech like was were you a middle schooler high schooler did you was college the first time you got involved no i was a sophomore in high school it was the fall of 98 my first tournament was either september or october of 98 and how did you get involved? Was it something, I mean, obviously something going on in your high school. Did you, did they have like a, a showcase day or something like that? Or how did no, you find out? No, I, uh, when I was in junior high school, I was in ninth grade and, uh, I took a drama class and the drama instructor, uh, was named Karen Ralston and she mentioned forensics to the class one day and I didn't know what that was. Um, but I knew someone from my junior high school who had done it. His name was Kevin O'Toole. And she said, Kevin O'Toole does this thing in high school. If you're interested in acting, but you don't have time for theater, you can do this thing called forensics. And I just kind of, I didn't listen at all. It didn't interest me and what she was saying. Didn't really make any sense. And so I, you just wanted to continue doing theater or what? I don't know what I wanted. I did sign up for a theater class when, when I first got to high school. Um, so that, that, string definitely continued for a semester but I just kind of didn't I was concerned with like getting into a business school at that time and like figuring out what I wanted to do and maybe continuing playing trombone at a higher level and um, then I got to high school and there was this girl that I liked and she went to the meeting and then she called me and she was like hey there's this thing called uh, speech and debate 
um, and I, I saw all these events and I watched some videos and you'd be really good at this. And because I was, uh, super in love with her, I was like, yes, I'm doing that. <laughs> it's always the girl that leads you in. <clears throat> Not always, but uh, it's always the girl that leads you in. <laughs> if, you, if you, if you can corroborate, that's, that's fine with me. So you got involved and I, I forgive my ignorance cause I don't know much about your high school career. I know, I mean, your, your college career is legendary, uh, but how did you do at the high school level? Um, Where are you from originally? I'm from Arizona. Okay. So I was born in Phoenix. I was raised in Mesa. This high school is called Red Mountain High School. I don't know if they still have a team. Um, uh, I've had a... Uh, I've had a... Yeah, I have no idea if they still have a team. Because uh, they changed directors two or three times that I know of uh, since I've left. Mm. And so I don't know what's going on there today, but we were really good. We were real hot. It was a really good squad. Was it a large team or uh, was it a lot of successful people on that team? Yes, to both. Uh, But it was only large the years that I was there, not because of me, but just because there was a confluence of people. Hmm. Um, And so we had two, we had one really good debate team. The girl who got me on the team, her name is Courtney Klein. She's actually kind of famous now. She's in the nonprofit sector. Um, she was a really sick debater and she had two partners that were really good. Um, we had a really good debate coach named John Kircher, who's a lawyer Mm -hmm. right now. I think he's still with Brian cave law firm in New York city. It's a really hot firm and he was a really, really smart guy. Um, and then we had individual events, coaches coming in and out from the ASU team. Jeremy Smith was one. So it was linked up to the college? Not not at all. It, it was just that... Uh, in the neighborhood? No, it wasn't really in the neighborhood. Mesa and Tempe are 17 miles apart. Uh, but the thing is, though, that everyone knows that ASU is the only game in town, and everyone was aware that they were really nationally successful uh, starting in the early 90s. They won their first title in 1988. Um, remember Robert Adonto. Uh, but they got really, really good in the early '90s, and then they stayed good. By the so by the time I was there, it was '99. Brian Davis had just graduated. Heidi Saltzman had just graduated. Everyone knew that they were really, really good friends of Caters. Mm-hmm. And so any coach in Arizona who knew that they wanted their students to get better and didn't have an alumni pool to draw from, they were kind of. Um, I don't want to say stuck, but they were like there was one obvious place where you could get coaches, and that was Arizona State. Uh. And so if you knew uh, Arizona State kids who wanted to coach, then you would just call those people and they would show up and see what they could do. And um, our coaches were uh, very sporadic. Um, But uh, all that to say, yeah, it was a pretty big team. We had probably 23 people. Um, We had a couple... Like active members? Yes, yes. like the core group who was active and successful was probably 12 or 13 people. And mm. then there was a, like a, you could count on for state and stuff like 23 people. And there was like a really good, uh, two or th- couple really good LDRs, maybe more, um, one or two good policy teams at any given time. There were two or three good oratories, one or two good humors, one or two good dramas, a duo, um, Lots of expos. We were really good at expos. Hmm. Um, we were pretty good at extemp. What were you doing mainly? Because you kind of came in as an actor. Were you 
doing debate originally or were you doing mm. impromptu or my first year I did I started in prose and then I got a humor and a drama and then I got a duo the duo was probably after the prose um, but I had those four events and two of them weren't very good <laughs> uh, but the prose and the humor were good um, and then my junior year I started doing debate and I started uh, yeah, my junior year I started doing debate and then my senior year I started doing extemp because the Arizona State, uh, it's called the Southwest Championship. It's the high school tournament they host. They had a pentathlon. They had a real like college individual events uh, award. And um, I wanted to, I wanted my junior year just just kind of like I, it just, I had the most events and I did well in the most events. You fell into it. I, yeah, I backed into it. Um, and, <clears throat> uh, cause I had an oratory. That's what allowed me to enter is I needed two genres. And so I had an oratory and three or four interps and I did well enough and I, I won it. And then I was in my senior year, I said, I want to win it honestly. Mm. So I want, I'm going to do extemp. I'm going to do oratory again. I'm going to have my interps. And uh, Bob's your uncle. And Did you do you think of yourself as an interpreter, or do you think of yourself as a platformer, or just a speaker in general? Limited prepper. If if you had if if there was a gun to your head, what would you pick? Um, I'm I guess interp, uh, but like by percentage, uh, I did better in the other stuff, like because I put up so few of them relative to the success I had, whereas I put up all kinds of interps. Mm. Um, uh, you, I don't know. I've never really thought about it, but um, I guess I, I don't, I suppose that most people would say I'm an interpreter. Uh, luckily though, uh, and you can, anybody who's young listening to this, uh, this is, this is a real lesson. Luckily, every event is an interp. So, right. So if you're an interpreter, uh, I think there's real truth to that. Yeah, I I remember the first time doing informative because I'd always stayed with the interps, and it wasn't until maybe my junior year in college I tried it, and I had instant success with it. Yeah, and I was shocked, and I I discovered that same thing just kind of stumbling upon it, which is oh I'm interping my informative, and I didn't realize that there was so much interp that really was going on at the platform level. There's interp that's happening. It, you know, in an extemp round and the best extempers, there's definitely some interp happening. Oh, 250 million percent. And that goes... <laughs> That's a lot of percentage, AJ. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's almost impossible. <laughs> almost. Yeah, and, and impromptu is 500 million percent in wow. interp. It's, it is just like improvising and yeah. going on a show. And, uh, it, you know, the climax is yours to come up with. They have this thing in high school, uh, maybe in junior high too, mm. uh, where they, they write oratories. This is how... Pam Caddy and Joe Wyckoff used to coach oratory. You'd have this this really artificial thing called the seven minute summation mm. uh, after the second point. So after the second point, you sort of break down the problem and the cause or whatever, however the speech is structured. You sure. sort of recap. So let's see where we are right now. We've got this problem, and it's coming because Americans are too fat or whatever, right? And so you just restate what you said. And it's I like called, that. I like your interpret voice just it, now. It's called the seven-minute summation. Uh-huh. Um, really what it is is a climax. They figured out a way to right. put a climax into a public address. Right. 
Uh, and you know, that's just your eight thirty moment kind of exactly 100%. And it's no, it's no coincidence that yeah. it's called a seven minute summation wow. because it will happen right around eight minutes between seven and eight minutes. That's great. Yeah. So let's, that's just grist. I've never heard of that before, but I like that. That's a little, that was little window. Yeah. So like Joe Wyckoff retired and I don't know how many camps Pam Caddy does. Um, and I don't think she does any outside of Minnesota or you know what? She might've retired too. These are old names, but, um, uh, yeah, someone told me that that uh, they took a, a workshop from one. That's of an interesting of them. idea. So you get the pentathlon award your senior year, honestly, right? And mm-hmm. then you you graduate. Did you did you compete at the national level in high school? Uh, yeah. So I, I I left that question of yours unanswered. Um, yeah, I was. Uh, I think I was the only consistently nationally successful person on the team um we used to go to we went to berkeley once harvard once and then berkeley again um and we never went to glenbrooks we, ne- we weren't like a circuit team i really wanted to me and my coach mm-hmm. had a falling out our, our my senior year because she always would dangle this idea of being a national circuit team but she would never cough it up she would never like book the tickets or talk to anyone's parents or try and raise money it was always like no we're gonna do this in-state stuff mm-hmm um, and then we finally, like, I entered, like, myself into St. Mark's <laughs> when I was a senior. And sh- and I was trying to, like, f- make it so that nobody knew. Um, and it was just, like, my parents would send me. And then... Did you I, get busted on that or what? I got busted because eventually I, like, went through the school. And oh. I, I, like, talked to the vice principal or something. And then he talked to the, her, and then she flipped out. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, no, we weren't a national circuit team, but, like, I thought I was ready for it. Well, clearly you probably were. I mean, uh, your, your success at the college level, which I want to segue into, this brings us to the college level, uh, I mean, just unparalleled at that point. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, this I will obviously f- accumulates, uh, or, or not accumulates, but I guess kind of, builds to your NFA success and and winning all three different event types. So I will say for the record, there is an actor. Uh, he he, You might know him from the hit show Moesha. <laughs> I, I didn't watch too much Moesha. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, Moesha's dad is played by a guy named William Allen Young. Okay. William Allen Young actually competed for the University of Southern California. Okay. And in 1971... He won impromptu poetry and crit. Wow! At NFA. All right. Well, then, then I stand corrected. Yes. So he is the first guy to win all three, um, and uh, as long as I'm being self-effacing, he is the only guy to do it in one year. Because I won crit in '04, oh. and then impromptu I in '05. Not that you did it all in the same year. Well, um, you would know better than I would. Yeah, I. Um, I don't even. The, the platforms I had at that last NFA were, um, I had an ADS, which was a eulogy for Hunter S. Thompson, which did not break. I was kind of surprised. I thought it was a really good gimmick. And then I had an informative, which was on biomimicry, which is we take engineering ideas from nature, and here are some right. of them. That's a good idea. I thought it was a good idea. How'd uh, that do? That, was, that died in quarters. Okay. But I finally got to write QE on the board, uh-huh. which I'd never gotten to do before, I don't think. And I thought that was super cool. 
Uh, so I was QE for one round. <laughs> in Quadruple entered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I had a... I didn't have a persuasion. I didn't have a crit. So yeah, I had those two platforms and they died in prelims and quarters, respectively. So no, I couldn't have done that in one year. Well, then I, I take back all my compliments. Yeah. Uh, you've been downgraded from top five to top seven. Brutal. <laughs> Uh, wait, wait. So who is who is know. number six? I have no. I don't know. Just somebody else. <laughs> There's no way that the, was it. William Young. William Allen yeah, Young. William Allen Young has just been. He's number six. Yeah. Well, he's definitely number six now. No. Uh, still an incredible feat just to win nationals. I mean, at that level of of competition, and to have done it in in different years is is a, a feat too because so much of I think the college machine really starts to favor and probably the high school machine as well it Older favors kids. yeah it favors the, the seniors people that have been around a little while you you start to work up relationships with judges they've seen you around and obviously that's all kind of tie breaks if you have the best speech in the round you're gonna win uh, but I think that stuff helps you know there's a million of those little things that that are pushing you a little bit further yeah I mean I would just add that if you have the best speech in the round you don't always win well, best speech in the round according to the judge's viewpoint, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on the hey, judges. Hey, good thing we got a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> just on the judges. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's funny, when I, was, I, uh, when I went to nationals the first time in high school, I was in humor, and uh, I got to the semis. I, I took 12th, and when I was a senior, I had, I had humor there three years, and then when I was a senior, I had a humor, and it died in quarters i think and i was real pissed because i thought it was good uh <clears throat> well maybe not real pissed because i didn't think it was real good but it was uh maybe I mean, nobody likes to go out in quarters so i was probably sure. just mad about that right and um i saw like all the people in the semi that year and i remembered all of their faces from two years ago because oh. i was beating them in octas and quarters and prelims and they, you know, they just weathered the storm, and got, and it was, it was, it was pretty cool to see that, you know, people, you know, everyone, some people figure it out, you know, and get better, and some people like me, uh, you know, if you, if your head's not right, or if the lit's not right, uh, or if the event is rushed, or if judges are repping out for you, right, you're not going to get better. You're gonna, you're gonna flame out. Yeah, you know, the pressure's you're just gonna, you're, the pressure's gonna get too much, or you're just not gonna be up to the task because of various things. But yeah, uh, there is it. It's inevitable that when you see someone's face five times, you're gonna have some kind of familiarity with them, even if you don't talk to them, even if you don't, you know, at college, the college level judges and you know students sometimes end up at the same parties and stuff it's not even to that level right it's just like familiarity i know that ali lee has been around right. i know that alex brown has been around i know uh you know that david to son has been around i've seen this kid all four years sure uh subconsciously what can i do for this kid right now I, it must be his last nationals are getting close. What can I do for this kid right. right now? Or at very least, if there's pressure on the judge to try to pick the winner, then you kind of know that's a safe bet because you've seen them win so much before too, right? These names that they've done well. and I'm not even saying that they've done well before. I'm just saying like the baseline familiarity mm -hmm. from seeing someone's face over and over again. Like there are kids like um, I talk about Gabe, 
Gabe Gutierrez a lot. He's an NBC anchor. I saw him all three years at Nationals. He was there every single year, and I didn't know anything about him except I thought he was from Texas, and I assumed that he was doing uh, extemp. And I don't think he was. I think he did drama, but I think he was from Texas. And it was just like one of these guys whose face I saw every year because mm. he was so tall and he was always so put together and his hair was always so perfect. And I was like, there's that guy, there's that guy, there's that guy. And I would see him at Harvard. And I would see him at Nationals. And then like the ISU swing my freshman year in college, he's going to Northwestern University and he walks up to me for the first time in four or five years. And he's like, are you do you do humor or did you do humor? I was like, yeah. He was like, Hey, I'm Gabe. We were at nationals a bunch. I was like, yeah, I know exactly who you are. Uh, just because like you've been in the same room with the person, even if they're not doing well. And that was the last you ever spoke to him. (laughs) It's, it's funny. That's exactly right. Because I think he, I think he only competed his freshman year really in in college because he, it's such a good journalism school. And Uh now obviously he's a super successful journalist. Right. Uh, he did like he's one of those guys that just did not have time for us uh, like all the people who were really sick in high school who never compete yeah. in college they just don't have time they're doing something else I, from when I was in high school and I saw college for the first time I actually talked about this in episode one I just didn't think college was very good and I didn't understand oh no it's like a whole other level of subtlety and um, I mean the interp is is quite different I think at the at the college level compared to the high school level yes. especially at nationals yes and proudly so yeah and and i did not get that when i was in high school it just it didn't ring it just felt like oh this is flat and i didn't appreciate the subtlety to it until i got involved with it that's a very common tale um someone was saying at, the, at an nfa meeting years ago i think she went to otterbein high school or somewhere in ohio i don't know if otterbein is in ohio but she Sounds was, like it. She was like, her Oregon. Uh, she was saying the kids in Ohio, like the high school kids, all think that college forensic sucks, and they'll tell you that. And it's like I get in a certain way I get that because a lot of high school coaching is so out of whack. Mm-hmm. Like you, the j- coaches all over the country. Um, this is not. This is a problem in California too. Coaches in, all over the country really disrespect the judges. And they think that the judges won't understand it unless it's screamed into their face. Mm. Um, I have heard some things uh, about California that, you know, we have uh, such a high ESL population that sometimes you have to do that. That's interesting. Because a lot of people aren't from the United States and California. And so I've heard it said that um, it does need to be very like kabuki type of, you know, airplane runway like guiding you in what what the emotion is to feel yeah and so like i understand those arguments but um uh a lot of the coaching would lead you to believe that college is bad because it's nothing like high school so if that's your frame of reference you're gonna think that and the other thing is um i don't know you were in high school a few years before me so like mid 90s uh not every high school is down the freeway from Arizona State, mm-hmm. right? I never thought college forensics was bad, ever. Right. Not even close. And I didn't, I didn't even have an opportunity to think that. Uh, you can think that, uh, you know, if, by, by 
the end of my junior year, I was pretty convinced that high school forensics was bad <laughs> and that I was part of the problem. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's when you don't have one of those, like if you go to peak in community high school or, uh, anywhere but Glenbrook South in Illinois, you're going to think that college forensics is rad because yeah. ISU is really good and Bradley's really good. Because you're right there with the, the best of them. I mean, it seems like sure. It seems like that's true. Um, and a lot of really smart people go to Bradley and they compete like almost uniformly if you're a speech kid in from Illinois. You know, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. I think the people that I saw when I was in high school that were doing college was they were from Carson Newman, but they weren't even debaters. They were, it was like a duo and they're not really known Carson for, Newman high school, Carson Newman college. It was, they were Carson Newman college. Uh, it was a duo from Carson Newman. I was in, I grew up in Tennessee and, I know. and so it was right down the street from Carson Newman. Okay. And that was our ASU, I guess, but yeah. Carson Newman, at least as far as I'm aware of their history has always right. been a debate school and mm-hmm. not, and interp school. So I'm sure the duos that we were seeing were not these, you know, rock star ASU kind of duos. I was thinking of Isidore Newman high school in Louisiana. Uh, oh no. Also known for debate. I, I don't know them. They're they, not known to me until now. Some kid like went 11 and zero in the final round in like 1994 or something oh, crazy. Wow. It, and I, uh, his name is Justin something. Uh, he's he's in the rostrum. I used to read that rostrum all the time. It was like ninety four, ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, maybe ninety seven. But yeah, he crushed faces, and I think he was a freshman. I think he went eleven in the LD final, and he was a freshman because I saw that kid's name in the rostrum when I was You're, at nationals. Oh shit! And I was like, holy smokes! Yeah, this guy's alive, and he didn't make it out of octas. What's going on? <laughs> Walking legend. <laughs> the game has left him behind. Right. Let's talk about the Splinter Factory for a minute. Why? Because it's a beautiful performance of yours. Um, and it's the only one you've seen? Because no, it's the only one online? I, well, I definitely saw that one. Uh, but I've seen, I saw your impromptu as well, which is, at least at the time, was online. Uh, but I, I frequently use your, your performance in the Splinter Factory as an example uh, of, of how, to, how to do interp. And I use a lot of, just the opening teaser alone is really rich with a lot of choices that you've made and really interesting ones uh, when you look at text. And it's something I talk to my students about a lot, like when you read text and most people, I think, just pick up the words and just start saying the words and they think that's it. But you've really made a lot of choices within that poem to create a world, to create an interaction with other people. And there's a lot to really unpack with that poem. And it's not a program, is it? I mean, I'm not familiar with the poem itself, but was it was one long poem it was not a, a compilation of different poems am i correct you are not correct it, okay uh so first of all that's twice i've not been correct with you <clears throat> i should really do my homework before the show huh <laughs> no this is good television finding <laughs> Being stuff wrong finding stuff out live is is the bread and butter of american media uh jeffrey mcdaniel first of all is the best writer in the english language okay and i will that's no small compliment that's uh well look man i i can only speak to the stuff that i've read in english and uh he's the man he is a master and he's been teasing a novel for like 10 years at this point <laughs> like joel chamara knows him rob telfer knows him andrew chamberlain has been in the same room with him a couple times and this guy apparently has a novel and 
I think Joel read one chapter of it in like 2008 and he was like, anybody who does this is going to win nationals in whatever event they put it in. And then he's going to win an Oscar for screenplay. Once he makes this book into a movie, it's the most incredible thing I've ever read. Uh, so first of all, Jeffrey McDaniel is just Jeffrey McDaniel is nearly undefeated at nationals. Cause, um, Robert Miltz won two poetry titles in 1999 doing Jeffrey McDaniel's book, uh, the forgiveness parade. And then I took first and second, first and second with the splinter factory. And then someone did the endarkenment with first at NFA second at AFA. Is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. Um, and then someone did the endarkenment when that came out, um, to great success. Uh, maybe someone from Western, I don't know, but then this new one, um, that I just, I just performed a poem at, uh, Jeff Hannon's wedding a couple years ago. And, uh, that book is hot fire. Uh, so anything, anything you're talking about with imagery or stuff that I've added to the text, it's just like, those are just scant offerings at the altar of Jeffrey <laughs> McDaniel. Oh, that I, guy. he's got to appreciate it then because it's, I mean, I'm I'm seeing what you're what you're saying and what you're doing and how you're enhancing the words in a really um, in a very it's it's a very delicate way because it also it, it not only supports the thesis that you've created in your argument but also adds humor in the right places. It adds um, you know different ups and downs. You've got a roller coaster going of different emotions and your delivery of it and the, the the actions behind it really enhance that that poem or poems are you saying it was a collection of his poetry yes yeah, so okay. let, let me once again finally answer your question <laughs> um it is a book it is a collection of poems called the splinter factory mm. it is a book that you can find at any library or find bookstores everywhere and uh there is a poem in there called the splinter factory uh but that poem i don't even think is in my program uh. But I, uh, I did a, when I was in high school, I was in the National Final of Poetry with his first book, with Jeffrey McDaniel's first book called Alibi School. And so there's this tradition. Um, if you want to not anger the forensics gods, you, you, you cut the whole book into a program or as much of the book as you can. You mm -hmm. find the through line, you make it into a story. And then you title the program the title of the book, and it's this by Jeffrey McDaniel. And if you deviate from that, the the forensics gods will be angered, and you will not find great success. Wow. Um, there's a all this time I've been living in in sin, I suppose. Yeah, you can't you can't break it up, man. So like, there's there's a funny story. Um, there's a lot of funny stories that I should tell right in a row, but uh, do it. Uh, when we were at that at that AFA in Mississippi, it was 2003, and I actually cut this this program, um, the Splinter Factory. That book came out in like late October. I was waiting for it. I was like, he's due for another book. He's due for another book. Mm. He's due for another book. And I was watching Amazon, watching Amazon, watching Amazon, and then um, in 2003, was yeah. Amazon even around back then? Fall of 2002. Wow. Okay. Go ahead. And. Uh, I, uh, he, the book came out in like late October. So I took it to the Bradley tournament. I had a program already, a poetry program. Um, 
And so I took a version of the, the program I used at nationals of the splinter factory and it was good. And I took second in the, at the Bradley final or whatever. And people liked it a lot. And my coach got real mad. Reagan Fox, formerly of UT Austin, which is exactly the thing that an old UT Austin person would get mad about is I changed the program without telling him, uh, because like he, he worked, like he put in some work on that program. And so like, I get it, but you know, the competitor gets to do whatever they want in the round. Um, so I was doing every other round, his program, my program, his program, my program. And then I compared ballots and it wasn't even close. Uh. Um, so that was my poetry from then on. And then I recut it before nationals. Um, and there was a segment in there that was, uh, cause I had a, a a thing for a girl at Western Kentucky. Her name was Libby Al. Uh, that's not her name anymore. Uh, she's married, but, uh, there was a segment in there that was just for her. Like I put this poem in there just for her. And then, uh, uh, so the semifinal happens. I'm in there with Rob Telfer. Rob Telfer's doing a program like a pre woke in 2003. He was doing a, a, something about white supremacy and wokeness. Mm. And, uh, it was called, um, a program of the reluctantly privileged. And he's a tall white man. Um, who's had, you know, some of the finer things in life, uh, you know, not, not without his own personal tragedies, but you know, he's had a good life. And so it's a program about, uh, and it's all these different poets who have a, a poem about this, right. about like, I see all this oppression around me and I, I avoided it and I don't know how, and it's not a good feeling and we need to talk about it. And he had a program in there from Splinter Factory because Joel Chamara got the book at ISU uh, and like immediately split it up and like put this poem in this program, this program, this program, this program, uh, this program. Spread, this program, spread this program. it out. Yeah. That's okay. angering the, the forensic gods. That's, you can't what this, do that. that's what this story is about. Right. So like um, Rob Telfer goes for like Rob Telfer maybe knows that I'm doing the whole book and he knows that like the backbone of it or like a huge segment of his program is mm-hmm. very noticeably um, one of the things that I'm using. And so he gets up there and he, he does it and he's in semis and he's hot shit at that time. Uh, and so he goes first cause he's double entered and mm-hmm. he's like, he goes to poetry first to like sort of claim it. And then he leaves and then it's either like one or two pieces later I go up. Uh, and, uh, you know, the round was good and I was good. And then I made the final and he didn't. And Joe Guffey said later, you were so good in that semi you made you get out and you made him not get out. Cause like he said that the judges were punishing Rob for doing that poem. Not as well as I had That's done. That's great. It. But really what he meant was the forensics gods were angered. You yeah. cannot treat Jeffrey McDaniel that way. So uh, here's the second story. Let me interject real quick. I saw this one time when Richard Pryor's uh, daughter wrote her biography three people in the round all doing the same prose and uh man i always think about this you know somebody going up and what person number two must be thinking when they're like oh shit i gotta follow that but person three when after they're seeing the second person perform dude you're melting at that point aren't you dude james copeland told this story i possibly the late james copeland i don't know um, it's weird that it's disrespectful of me to not know that, but, uh, James Copeland, 
president emeritus of the National Forensics League, now mm-hmm. the National Speech and Debate Association, told this story. My certificate still has his name on it. Same here, buddy. Yeah. Same here. Um, he told this story at uh, Arizona Nat Qualls one time. He was in a national. He was in a national qualifying tournament, uh, I think, in Wisconsin, where there were seven people in the humor final, mm-hmm. or, or what would what became the final. Seven people in the humor final. Six of them were doing Midsummer Night's Dream. Wow! Get out of my face! Don't ever, don't ever tell me that forensics doesn't get better decade over decade. <laughs> that is inappropriate. That is the kind of thing that was happening in 1977. So don't tell me that that these kids aren't improving the game year yeah. over year. Oh, they. I think it's gotten insanely difficult. I think the quality level has yeah. just risen and risen and risen. Yeah. But not? get back to your second story. I want to hear more about what you're saying. Uh, so Angr- the, angering the gods. Uh, well, so this is more about the Splinter Factory in general. So there's a lot of things around that that I want to talk about. The So anyway, this is a quick one. So I get into the final round. Um what tournament is this? This is uh, AFA okay. the, at Oxford, Mississippi in 2003. And uh, the final is like me, Nathan Jackson, um, Adam Henze's in there. Um, three people I can't remember. Nathan ends up winning. Um, I can remember these if, if I give it a minute. But, um, uh, but anyway, but Juanita Page is in there. Um, and uh, anyway, that girl Libby Ow, that she's. Like, I was going to ask if she ever heard the poem. She, she never did until the final round, and oh. she was the last person who walked in the door, uh. and she sat in the back row, <clears throat> right on the aisle. So I had like a clear line of sight to do that to her for her. How poetic, huh? <laughs> uh, so you 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 said something about and uh, McDaniel's a good writer for this, but this is the best advice I ever got about poetry, and I got it on this program, and I got it from Jeremy Smith. Um, he was on a, sitting on a trampoline in my backyard, and I was standing in the dirt performing this, and I he was like, like just not getting it and mm-hmm. not liking it, and Jeremy was a really good coach because he has uh, he just has ADHD, mm-hmm. like he just can't pay attention, he gets bored really really easily. And so if it's bad, he'll, and the other thing is, if it's bad, he'll tell you. Uh, And he was like, he's like, you need to work on this. I know you'll figure it out. You're better at interrupt than I am. But like, like prose does this. And it's a gradual line, gradual line up, like, like perfect uh, dramatic structure. That's prose. Like the, the edge of a triangle. Yeah. Like a right triangle sliding its way up. Okay. Yeah. Think of that upward contour of uh, narrative structure. Right. Um, and he goes, poetry does this. Up and down, up and down, zigzag. Yeah, like sharp teeth. And he's like, every page can have a climax if you want it to. Every poem can have two climaxes if you want it to. Things can be very, very severe in minute two. He didn't say all that. I had to figure that out. But he was like, poetry's like this. Okay, just up and down. Up and down, up and down, up and down. And that poem, or that program, was a really good place to show that off because that's what it's like. When you go from, um, you know, America's very, very racist. I screwed over this girl. I used to be a severe drug addict. I should be dead or in jail. Sure. Um, I screwed over more than this girl. I screwed over this, this woman's husband. Right. You know, those, when, you, when you're going through thoughts like that, um, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Teeth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also really like the... 
Oh, last thing. Go ahead. Uh, we were. I was at a camp one time, and I was. And one of the people at the camp was uh, Dr. Zenobia Harris herself, uh, an individual uh, pentathlon winner. Oh, at this very AFA, in fact, at Oxford, Mississippi, in 2003, she won pentath that year from West Texas A&M University, another team that has been hollowed out, as far as I know. Mm. But um, she was. I'd performed for the camp, and then one of the comments she gave was. What I like about watching AJ perform, and I didn't even know that she paid attention to me when I was performing, because um, uh, she's a very focused person. Um, but she was like, one of the things I like when I, when I watch AJ perform is um, he doesn't do anything with his body that's not deliberate. He moves so seldom, mm -hmm. but every time he moves, it means something. And because she was talking about this program, uh, it made me think of what you said. Is that uh, uh, that's that's true of you as a person? Like I just I know you well enough to know y you just don't have superfluous movements. I do. I gesture all the time, constantly, but that's not how you operate. I like that about you. Well, I'll tell you, um, I don't know if I doubled down on that because she gave that comment. <laughs> um, I do. I do believe that. I do believe that. Um, People who talk a lot have things to hide. I do believe hmm. that people listen more closely to the person who doesn't talk very much. Um, so maybe that naturally found its way into my physicality. Yeah. Uh, or it could it, it could well be because she highlighted it and she said this is a value, um, and I uh, I respect embraced her. it. I, res I respect her opinion. She's a very cerebral person. Um, and she also is a person who doesn't waste a lot of energy. She's very efficient with yes. everything. Getting back to Splinter Factory real quick, one of the things I really like about that uh, performance... Is the watermark? Because someone <laughs> was don't too like the, cheap? The, yeah, I don't like the watermark. I will, uh, never, I will never forgive whoever was... I, I'm pretty sure someone from Arizona State put that online. Um, I will never forgive that. It's just like, pay the five bucks, you idiot. And get the watermark off. <laughs> That's awful. We own the video. Like, it's our content. There's no reason this watermark should be on there. Just pay the $5 for the software and get it off. <laughs> you fools. What are you doing here? No, we'll just upload it to YouTube. You can see it anyway. <laughs> With the big watermark right over your face. I don't get it. Like, what's the point? What's the point? Just pay the $5 well, for the full. Here's what I like about it. Is... The argument that you're making is a really unique argument. I don't ever remember hearing anything before or since um, that really talked about that, about how we in society are kind of ripping ourselves apart, but how do we repair that? We repair it, you know, as you said, just like one, one person at a time, like one bond yeah. at a time. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really interesting concept. It's a really interesting argument that you were making. And I think it's a really great example of using literature to make that argument. Mm -hmm. um, I, you had written something to me when you were judging me one time. Uh, this was down, I think, in San Diego. There was a, a tournament. And you wrote on a ballot, uh, you wrote a really nice compliment to me that was um, about my intros. And oh, had, was this was the Southwest Championship? Yeah, it was. Be oh, at Southwest College. Yes. It's the swing right before Point Loma. Yes. Yeah, I remember this. And, I was thinking about this today. And you wrote on the ballot, you were like, you really know how to write intros, something to that effect. And that really meant a lot to me, you know, because getting a ballot from you was always a big deal. It's like, fucking, AJ's my judge. Oh, cool, cool. You know, what's he going to say? But 
I, I really took that to heart and I, um, I really appreciated that coming from you because it was, uh, I, I knew that you knew what you were talking about. And now knowing even better, like some of the, the pieces that you put together, I find myself really appreciating that ballot more than almost any other ballot that I've gotten because it was, it was about something that, um, that you do so well and for you to be complimentary about it was kind of this blessing from, you know, someone that really knows what that what that is to be good at an intro and to explain an argument uh the intros are something i i could probably soapbox on a little bit and well that's what my next question is is what do you like in an introduction brevity brevity yeah the introduction is i i i always put a lot of stock into uh the selection of literature i know that a lot of uh or it seems like a lot of judges can judge around um, and they don't really care what's happening in the story mm-hmm. and they don't really care, um, how well the characters are developed, uh, or they just assume that every character is going to be developed the same amount. So they don't pay attention. Uh, but I always, uh, that was always the h- hardest and most important part. It's why so many events in my career, like s- people, uh, people on teams like mine just sort of show up for the new year and they put up 10 events or they put up eight events and they put up, Oh, I need a poetry. Oh, I need a prose. Um, Oh, I need, have to do a poi this year. And it's like, no, you don't. If you don't have the literature, you don't have to do any of that. Mm. Switch to crit, do a persuasion. If you have the literature, then you can do the event. You don't put the, I get into an argument with Marcus, me and Imambu Adabong were yelling at Marcus Hill at the James Logan camp in 2009. And he was like, I want to do a poi about um, black fathers. And I was like, okay, what literature do you have? And he's like, I don't have any. And I was like, then how do you know you want to do this poi? And me and Emma were just like, if you don't have the literature, there's no poi. You don't have to do poi every year. It's not a big deal. Find something else. Do a persuasion to do with black fathers or an info. Like find a find an artifact and do a crit, but like you're asking us for advice about how to put together this poi that doesn't exist and you have no literature for. Do you think there's a counterpoint to that, which is the idea of going out to find literature to support the argument that you're trying to make? Um I mean that could be a an educational benefit to say all right here if you want to do that where are you going to go to find that literature so our first yes you must be right and i should clarify we were we were it's one thing to say i'm gonna i'm i think this would be good i'm gonna go out and do it Mm. right i did that with rome i came up with that topic on a train in the german countryside i was just writing down things to do a poi on and one of the things i wrote down was the united states is the new roman empire and I made it, I manifested, I made it happen. I found mm. the literature and it came together. Um, what Marcus was doing was uh, asking for advice about something that didn't exist yet. I see. And he was like, how would you do this? And we were like, well, we wouldn't do it because we don't have literature. Right. What are you talking about? Uh, when, you, when you, you know, you kind of make it someone else's problem and students do this a lot. Me and Tommy want to do a duo. Can you find one? Yeah. It's like, can you find one? Yeah. What do you... It, how do you know you want to do duo with Tommy? How, you need to because you right live piece. together. <laughs> right, yeah. What are you What are you talking about? You want to hang out with that person. Um, and you know, look, uh, there's exceptions to that too. Like uh, 
Joe and Ryan wanted to do duo because they live together mm. and they found the labyrinth. Um, I'm, maybe I'm just saying you have to learn to do it the right way before you can do it the wrong way before you can start saying just manifesting we should mention that's joe guffey and ryan hubble right yeah okay yeah they they were they did duo in and the labyrinth was great that was a, a really nice duo with a very inventive uh tech work yeah yeah it was it was pretty wild stuff it was really good and i i i was on the wrong side of history on that i didn't think that people would like it at all um i'm glad i was wrong i can see how one might think that I mean, in 2003, coming off of the 2002 season where everyone was like 45 years old and boring uh, in national finals, uh, it was just like Josh Herman, uh, you know, Eric Long, Jamie Rewerts. It was just like these buttoned up people. Well, and then that starts to, to morph into Andy Stone and Eric Dern doing uh, Transformers. Transformers. Yeah, you can draw a line from one to the other. Right. And the crazy thing about that is. Um, they're from the same school they're, no that's not crazy at all that's what you'd yeah. expect uh, but the crazy thing is um, I was really against Joe and Ryan doing the labyrinth and Mike Groutman was guest coaching because we didn't we our coaching situation was a little bit off in 2003 and so I got Mike to come down and do a weekend or a work day mm-hmm. in March before nationals and Mike Groutman was nice enough to come out um, he was he was finishing at UT Austin, but he wasn't coaching anymore at UT Austin. Mm. So he was able to come out and work with us. And it was nice of him to do that. Um, that guy was really good. He was re- like, at one point, Mike Groutman was in charge of 30% of what was happening in college forensics. Chris Grove was in charge of 30% of what was happening in college forensics. They were just such uh, really serious coaches, yeah. serious, serious coaches and tireless. They coached so many people over the years at a really high level. They were really influential guys. Um, so I was bitching to Mike about um, this duo. And I was like, I don't know why they're doing this screwball duo. It's not going to do it very well. And he was like, well, you know, are they having a good time? And I was like, I obviously. And he was like, then they should do it. That's it's it. not a big deal. Yeah. And I was like, bro, I, I want to win nationals. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I was completely on the wrong side of history. Flash forward five years, he's in charge of ASU's team. Eric and Andy are his students. Yeah. Uh, and I believe, as the story goes, he fought tooth and nail against Transformers. <laughs> he thought it was stupid and that people wouldn't like it. Well, and their argument for that was, let's just have a good time. Exactly. So that, that's why it's a story. Yeah. Because he figured out a way to get back on the wrong side of history. Yeah. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's just because... He was institutionalized like I was. Yeah. Like it was his name on the shingle, like it, like mine was in 2003. Sure. I don't know. I think it might also just be, you, if you're in this activity long enough, you start to kind of lose sight of why you got involved. And I think that's true for a lot of people, not everybody, and maybe not necessarily you or Mike, but I think a lot of people, um, they forget what made it fun in the first place. And that can happen a lot of times. And sometimes you need to just get back to basics and be like, let's just goof around yeah and sometimes you need to leave because you got what you got from it <laughs> yeah and that's now true it's too. over um uh anyway what that's, I want that's really true i think people have a hard time doing that well the the real world is a scary place sure you know and there's only you know if you do so much like if you do as much speech and debate as i did uh you really 
uh, in a lot of ways you you can foreclose on a lot of options because you don't do all the things that normal college right. kids do if you're if you're uh you know if you're doing speech camps every summer you're not doing internships then when you graduate you're hosed yeah if you um if you go to arizona state so you can do speech at a higher level and you but you got into like the wharton school and you go to arizona state and instead. you chose not to go to wharton then are you hosed i don't know right but it certainly shapes your future like you foreclose on some options like sure. you can't be an east coast hotshot anymore you can't be you know a wharton graduate anymore um so you know it, it, speech speech and debate at the very high levels uh gives in some ways as much as it takes away in some ways that's For, interesting that segues nicely into your future so can we before we do that okay can i say what i wanted to say about intros oh yeah please that's the that's the soapbox thing go for it and this could very well be um a get off my lawn type of thing <laughs> okay but um these intros are just out of control man. oh wow just out of control why so like so in southern california um there's a lot what of trends are you noticing? Uh, and this isn't dude. This isn't a, This is far past a trend. This is now a norm. Oh man. Uh, my, uh, the, the way it's been explained to me is that there are so many debaters who judge interp who don't know how to judge interp that they just judge the intro. And hmm. so in Southern California, you have like these minute and 45 second what? intros where you're talking about theories and you're like making comparisons and you're like talking about the argument and it's like, dude, can I understand the story if you just perform it? If I can't, you've got a different problem right. than your intro being too short. You have an incoherent story or an incoherent technique. Fix that. But, you know, my, my favorite intros ever were one sentence. <laughs> one time I did a drama. It was called Nocturne by Adam Rapp. He's not, he's, I think he got famous from this play. Nocturne is about a guy. It's all in first person and it's one dude. And he is coming home late one night and he's got a sister who's a toddler and he pulls in the driveway too fast and he kills her. And it changes his relationship with his parents forever, as you might imagine. Mm -hmm. um, by the end of the play, he gets back together with his dad. Like his, he goes to see his dad who's dying and his dad like kind of sort of forgives him and that's it. And the reason I like this, this didn't go anywhere. People hated this thing. Um, I don't know if they hated my acting, but they hated the way I did it. And here's what I did. I, I did the, <laughs> I opened the book and I just started performing and for nine minutes I just did the thing and I finished it and I closed the book and I said, it's never too late. Nocturne by Adam Rapp and sat down. And I thought that was so. It wasn't so even an intro; it was an outro, right? Exactly. Right. Right. But there's two things happening there. One is, it is never like that's what the story. It's yeah. never too late. Okay. You don't need a paragraph. I don't need to justify that choice with a paragraph and a half. Sure. And it's just like, look. Number one. If the story is incomprehensible, I already said this. If it's incomprehensible to me, fix that first. Right. Instead of writing an intro. Number two, if the story is at all good, I want to hear more of that. Yeah. Not so, you blabbing on yeah. about so, the story that so we're going to hear. Yeah. If you've only got six and a half minutes of usable material out of a story, that's the problem. Yeah. Fix that. 
or if the story is so bad that you need to like over contextualize it in order for it to mean something why don't you just go find something interesting but aj it argues something really good if it does that and it is really good i will hear it in the performance right and then there's another problem, right? Like all these long intros, they do nothing but cover up for longer problems. If your judging pool is unqualified to judge, fix that. Well, I, I have a problem with that concept, which is I think everyone is qualified. And I, I think I'm on the outside of most people that are, are heavily involved with forensics. I don't hate that view. I think, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And my first round was in 1993. And... Ever since that moment, people have said to me, oh, we need to get better judges. I've heard that my entire life. Yeah, sure. But I don't know what a better judge is. Who is a better judge? Yeah, I mean, it, if it's a competitor saying it, then they, they just mean like an institutionalized judge. Right. For whom I can skip steps and what, cut corners. What they really want is... The one every the time. One, they want them to pick me. Yeah, sure. I'm obviously the one. Yeah, better yeah, judges yeah. pick me. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it was a world of lay judges who were picking you, those are great judges. And it's like, stop being so selfish and just start acknowledging everybody's getting a first from a judge. You know, the, the judge has to pick a first, right? So the judge is a good judge to someone mm -hmm. because that's how they saw the round. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I wouldn't... I don't think inherently we have um a problem with the judging pool maybe i could have said that better no but i understand what you mean maybe i could have said if you have a whole segment of the population who doesn't want to listen to the story they just want to listen to the intro and be done with it um that that is not a good judge right okay so like no matter i'm not saying they evaluate the story poorly i'm saying the way i've heard it because i'm not a coach anymore Right. I, I'm like, I'm not reading my students ballots because right. I have no students. The way it's been presented to me uh, from multiple people over multiple years is that there is an overriding push for, to have the intro be belabored mm. or overly elaborate because there's a segment of the judging pool, mostly debate oriented, who doesn't want to or cannot evaluate the performance. And so they want to evaluate just the teaser and the intro and then be done with it. And I have some evidence for this because I was in a POI final uh, again at this pivotal Oxford Nationals and Conrad Hack was one of my judges. And he said, um, he gave me the four and he said, um, I'm giving you the four because you, uh, you didn't, you didn't have in the introduction the following sentence a program on blah 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 oh, come on and he said that he wrote that on paper in writing he put it his name to it you didn't have a sentence in the intro that said a program on blank and i don't believe in doing that because you don't say mad max fury road a movie about the apocalypse and sexism yeah <laughs> you don't have the rocketeer a movie about early 20th century optimism and hollywood why not why don't you have that? You don't have <laughs> Gone with the Wind, an ode to racist America, <laughs> right? To racist America. You don't have that because you have to sit and watch the movie. Like you to have figure to figure out. out what the movie is. Right. That's the point. Yep. And so all the, like I heard that, like my first two years in forensics, I heard all these people going, um, you know, Baton Rouge, a program on school shootings. And I was like, how, in what, how would I not know that it was a program on that? 
the the content is in the performance. It's not supposed to be in the intro. I'll just like you, it's not on the movie posters. Right. I'll tell you what I and like. So that's why I swore off of that. I what just, I do like. Every program had a title. I like title. That's exactly. That's it. I like a title. Yes. Where it's title this and if it's clever you can almost kind yes, of get that of course you can want it's not even if it's this then it's this it's like if you give it a coherent title it's going to explain what you need it to right explain. i'm glad you said that because that's where i was going next is i was going to say i like a program to have a little title it's your collection of yes. poetry you're the editor so to speak you're the auteur right more than the editor sure you you and selected so, the material title your shit i don't mind that but i agree with you i think a program all about whatever that yeah, is. It's, it's it's so over the head. Yeah, it's and it's, I think yeah. I, I think the problem though, AJ, is that you are someone who likes subtlety, who can appreciate subtlety. I mean, just in the in in the little I know about you and interactions that we've had, you are someone who can appreciate that element, and I don't think everybody can appreciate that. Uh, so we do need better judges. No, I'm just saying, I don't know what a better judge is. Well, someone who okay, listen. First of all. Um, just because I don't like being hit over the head doesn't mean that I appreciate subtlety. Those are two different things. Uh, that might be a fair, fair point. I don't like overwrought things. Right. That doesn't mean that I have some special appreciation for subtlety. I do think you have a special appreciation for subtlety, but that might that may be true. Right, but, but it you're isn't right. True. Those it, are not necessarily uh, those are not necessarily linked. All right. Well, that's interesting. Now let's get back to your future. What's what's going on with you now? Where are you at now? What are you doing now? How's I your life? I teach public speaking. I have a good life. The, the life of a college professor is uh, enviable, to say the least. Yeah, in what way? A week, dude. The hours, man. You can't beat the hours. <laughs> it's so good. Like most, when I was at uh, when I was at Mount Sac, I was working like eight hours a week. It was that's awesome. awesome, dude. It was great. And then, like in the summertime. I would have two classes. I teach for four hours a day, four days a week. I can handle that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I'm not there anymore. I'm, I'm classes closer to my house. Um, but like in the summertime, I'll teach two hours a day, four days a week, or four hours a day, four days a week. And then during the week, I'll teach three hours a day, twice a week. What are you doing with the rest of your time? As little as possible. <laughs> Just watching uh, episodes of Mindhunter? Uh, I mean, there's only so many. <laughs> If only they just kept making them. Uh, I sp- I am I uh, I just deleted a bunch of stuff uh, from my phone because I was an extremely online guy oh. the last few years, uh, just trying to keep up with the news um, and trying you know to find something to be optimistic about. Um, but uh, when you say delete, do you mean like apps and things like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just uh, got out from under that. So. Uh, Talking about the future, I think I'm going to be doing a lot more paper reading, uh, a lot hmm. more books, a lot more. I've got a lot of books that I've just compiled over the last few years that I haven't gotten like to. Your stack of books, the proverbial stack. Of I books, have so. a stack. I've been slowly whittling away, man. That's and great. it's almost like I hate you saying uh, Jeffrey McDaniel's. Is that I hate saying his name because now I'm going. Ah, oh, gotta read him, and it's just more stuff I got to stack on. Dude, I'll tell you, man, it is the quickest reads you just eat those books really i'm telling you it's like it's it's great because uh, a lot of poetry books you don't feel like you get your money's worth Mm. because they have like two stanzas on one page and (laughs) and the stanzas are like an inch wide you know so they're like smushed over. you're paying for words you deserve more words um that yeah i mean that is a really 
like charlatan way to look at it or like a really philistine way to look at it but there's some in some sense like you don't feel like you've read enough even mm-hmm. though you have all the words to think about but i was bringing that up because jeffrey mcdaniel books uh there's words all over the, every page mm-hmm. and it's great and all the poems are usually multiple pages long um and the imagery is just the best in the business. Just absolutely the best in the business. I can't wait. I'll have to dig into that. Uh, but yeah, like anyone you I don't up, know him. I, don't, I know Adam Rapp. You were mentioning Adam Rapp earlier. I know yeah. him, but I don't know Jeffrey McDaniel. Jeffrey McDaniel. I mean, Alibi School, Forgiveness Parade, Splinter Factory, The Endarkenment. And then there's a new one out last year. I think in late 2018, he came out with another one. There's three sections to that book. And I got this book to uh, my dear friend Jeff Hannon, who's the coach at Evanston Township High School and probably the best, uh, or on his way to becoming the best uh, congressional debate coach ever. Um, I mean, it's either Lisa or uh, Adam Jacoby or Jeff Hannon at this point, but Jeff is, is making a run. Uh, Jeff, he, he got married and I wanted to, he asked me to read a poem at his wedding and I was like, there's only one, there's only one poem, you know, like that that fictional mullah yeah. who burned down the library of Alexandria, <laughs> right? There's only one book. Um, uh, and so I went and I found, I, I went to see if Jeffrey McDaniel had a new book and he did. And I went to the library and I got it and I was reading it and reading it and reading it. And the, there's three chap, like Sections. there's three volumes in it. Okay. And the second volume is, um, read this at your friend's wedding. No, <laughs> the opposite. Oh, really? The second volume is called something like Diary of a Cuckold. <laughs> and it's all, it's like 13 poems about a, a wife, a, the husband whose wife is cheating on him. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, man, I might be sunk. I might have picked the wrong book. Uh, but the very last poem in that, in the very last section of the book, it was uh, beautiful. Wow. It was beautiful. I'll, I'll read it and get back to you. Yeah. What, let me see. There's one line that I, that I really like from that last poem, which is, um, "It's true you don't deserve this, but it's yours anyway." Wow! And it was about a guy watching a concert with his wife and his kid. That's cool. I like that. I dig that. It's really good. I will definitely check that out. AJ, I want to move into um, into a, a section I call the final round. All right. So this is <laughs> uh, ten questions in much the same way as like uh, Marcel Proust and and James Lipton and. Uh, yeah. pivot. So these kind of survey questions yeah. that everyone gets asked, and uh, I've got ten questions for you. I want to ask you. This is the final round. Number one: Were you superstitious when you were competing? Yeah, totally. In what way? Um, I had a little stuffed deer. That my mom. Uh, I had a little stuffed deer from the year two thousand. He had a two thousand uh, sewn on his antler, and I got it uh, right before the ASU tournament. Um, my junior year and I won individual events at that tournament. So I kept that, that deer came with me to every tournament. He, I had a trench coat pocket that he would sit in <laughs> and then my mom airmailed him to me for the Portland nationals in the year 2000, my junior year. You forgot him or what? I left him in Arizona and my mom airmailed him to me and she made him like little leather goggles <laughs> and a red so scarf. Funny. So he looked like the red Baron. It was great. That's great. So like he went everywhere with me. I kept like the notebooks that I would write the rounds that I had on. It was that first like folio that I got at my first nationals in, um, it was hosted in Arizona actually in high school in 99. I kept that notepad for as long as I could. 
I might it might just be the same notepad for my entire high school and college career but like every round I would write down and I would sign in and I would cross it off and there was a way to do that um, wow you got a lot of superstitions the way I would sign in was the same every time I didn't I didn't put value like explicitly on these things but I just did the same stuff over and over again the same way yeah I did that too the way I signed in like if I was DE I'd put a circle around it if I was triple in it, I put a, a triangle around it. And nice. I actually was quadruple in it a couple times. I put a box around it. And once I was quintuple entered and I got to draw a, a, you know, a pentagram. A pentagram. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question number two. Who was the competitor you most admired? Can I give you one in high school and one in college? Go for it. The high school one is, uh, that was John Egan for sure. He won uh, humor and then duo. Sorry, humor and then drama. Then he was in the oratory final and took third his senior year. And that guy, um, uh, he, he, he's one of the few people who, uh, when I would watch him, I knew that he could do stuff I couldn't do. Uh-huh. Um, he just had a, a better voice. He was better looking. He was smoother. Um, he, like, he, you know, he got into Juilliard for a reason. He's a, he's a, real, he's a real actor, and he looks really good performing um and uh he had a a calm when he was performing that i just i never equaled or came close to he was he was the man when i was in high school he was the man and if he had continued competing he would have been the man too wow he he had the goods what about college i had a really high opinion of myself when i was competing in college um so are you gonna say yourself no okay no i i uh i would never do that um, cause I never felt like a lot of that stuff I didn't in the moment, I was like surprised by a lot of it. Um, then when I got over the surprise, I probably was a little bit conceited. Um, even though I did my best to not be, I would probably say, um, by the end of her career, Meredith Schnug was an absolute machine at Miami. She was just unstoppable. Hmm. Like three platforms impromptu and extent. It's just like bank on it, bank on it. Like write checks that say <laughs> draw from the account of Meredith Schnug at nationals. She was just absolutely crushing mechanical. it. She was just mechanical and she was still so nice. Um, I know like there's, that's another person who like, could do stuff I couldn't do. Um, but you, I will tell you, uh, I have a special place. I have a special appreciation for two people after me, uh, Jesse Ole and Jacoby Cochran. Mm. Those guys, I don't like, I never saw either one of them perform, but I can, I can tell they've got the goods mm. and I've seen some videos of, of Kobe. Um, but I, I think both of those guys probably can do stuff. I can't do. I saw Jesse Ole. He was good. He was damn good. Yeah. Yeah. No, he, he had the goods. Both of those guys, super smart guys too. I'm told that Jesse Ole, uh, now is like a hyper influential political communication scholar. So he's still like doing, doing stuff I can't do, which is great. Which is great to see. He deserves it. He's a smart guy and, and another super nice person. All right. Question number three, what's the most memorable speech you've seen? I'm telling you, man, I, I have very vivid memories of a lot of different rounds. Um, and I don't, I've never been in a round where anything super crazy happened. Also. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, I don't have 
you know, the watermelon story or like the poop stain story. I don't like I wasn't in any rounds where anything totally insane occurred. Well, well, the watermelon story you're talking about was when uh, I can't remember his name, but he busted the watermelon he'd been carrying all year long for his he, ADS. What's yeah. the poop stain? What is that? Uh, when Derek Brown was in a national final of, I think, drama in 97, he signed. He just got up because Derek Brown is like notoriously. You guys know who Derek Brown is at home? He's a slam poet, musician. Uh, he just wrote a musical. Um, he's like a cult figure. Uh, if you, John Wilkes Kissing Booth is his band, but he was like one of the big successful slam poets for a long time. Um, and he now owns a publishing company called Right Bloody, which is right. if you if you compete, you've bought books from Right Bloody before because they <laughs> yeah. publish every poet that matters. Um, and uh, um, but Derek Brown was like famously. Uh, just sort of aloof and like one of those artistic people who just isn't socialized 100%, like 90%, but not 100%. <laughs> Still missing something. But he was like, he was in the army. He was in the airborne division in the army for a couple years or a few years. And so he got to college late. He was older than his contemporaries, mm -hmm. most of them anyway. And so he was just kind of over it. This was just like a silly thing he did so he could be in college for free. And uh, so he gets up he walks into the room where he like he's in the round sitting in the stands and his friend Jeremy is like not Jeremy Smith the Jeremy whose name I can't think of right now and Jeremy's like dude you got to sign in and he was like no I don't I'm here I don't have anywhere to be I'm in the round I don't have to sign in Jeremy's like dude just go sign in now and he's like dude I this doesn't matter and he's like if it doesn't matter then do it so Derek like lopes down the stairs and he like grabs the chalk and he looks back at Jeremy and he writes poop stain on the board in the fifth slot and he throws the chalk down. And he walks back and Jeremy's like, change that. And he's like, I'm not going to change that. And he goes, change that. Derek's like, I'm not changing it, dude. It doesn't matter. I'm not it's fine. I'm here. They can see me. They know who I am. I'm here. I'm done doing things for this tournament. I want to go home. Suddenly the round starts and they're still arguing about poop stain. <laughs> and Jeremy's like, you're an idiot. I can't believe this nonsense. You're so stupid. So the round starts and it's underway and blah, blah, blah. And then he finished the round. Blah, blah. Anyway, Derek won. <laughs> <laughs> you mean poop stain? Poop stain won. Uh, poop stain won a national title in drama. Number four, how do you explain forensics to someone who's unfamiliar with it? Everybody I know is familiar with forensics. You don't know anybody that I mean, if you inter interact with somebody, you meet somebody who's like, "What is that?" I, you know, when you just uh, so they say, "What is that?" and I'll say, "Speech and debate," and they go, "Oh, is that just the end of the conversation?" Like, do you do you explain how the competitions work? No, no I, I can't imagine. I can't remember the last time I was asked. Um, uh, As, I feel like I I interact with people on a fairly regular basis where they'll say, "Oh, so you." You like arguing with people? And I'm like, no, that's not it. Like, you're, you've got a misconception. So maybe uh, you seem more approachable than I do. <laughs> and so they will like, oh, maybe that's this it. This guy will talk to me. Whereas when I'm just like speech and debate, have you ever heard of that? They're like, yes. <laughs> yes, sir. Sorry. Uh, maybe that's it. All right. I so hope not. I'm happy to explain it. Like, if I were to explain it to somebody, I would say, uh, do you know what debate is? And uh, they would say, uh, yeah, do you get the topic at the tournament is one thing they say. And then I have to say, in parliamentary debate, you get the topic several times during the tournament. Yeah. 
Um, if you're doing LD, the topic lasts all year. Or if you're doing high school LD, the topic lasts for two months. Um, and then I would say the speech half is more complicated. There's several different kinds of prepared speeches. There's several different kinds of acting events yeah. where you interpret literature or stories or poetry or plays. And then there's two different kinds of speeches that you make up at the tournament, like f from one round to another, you'll make up the speech. That's actually a pretty good description. I, I can't imagine that anybody has ever <laughs> failed that question. What do you, why well, do you even ask that? I, you know what? I, I'll, do people have funny answers like, it's like a cult, like that? <laughs> yeah, probably. Is that why you're asking it? Well, because yeah, I just want to people... know what people think. Okay. I mean, that, that, why ask any question? I want to know what people think about it. Let me ask you question number five. What was your most unusual inspiration for a speech? You were talking about Rome. That, would you say that's your most unusual inspiration? It's probably, yeah. Um, you know, I don't remember how I came up with... Uh, I did a persuasion in 2004 about how you need to tape your relatives before they're gone. Oh, like... <laughs> yeah, not like surveil them. <laughs> but it could have been masking tape. I don't know what you mean. Yeah, no, I meant like interview them and talk to them and ask them questions about That's their lives idea, and yeah. get them on, on document that before they're gone and I don't know how the hell I came up with that but that was the most this is um, I was talking to Tanya Melendez recently at NCA last year and she said something that I that I think is true she was like um, we came up with this girl's persuasion on, on her old team. She's like, we came up with this persuasion based on one sentence in one of the articles that we were reading for someone else's info. Wow. And, and I was like, yeah, no, that's it. Like, that's the business. So like an informative speech, you should probably build it around an article mm. or some, some literature that you sure. have. But a persuasive speech, you can really just like think of something that like a concept. Change. Yeah. And, and like the more specific, the better. That was like such a silver bullet. One of my, the best speeches I ever saw was actually a student, middle school student that I had, great persuasive speech. Um, and he was frustrated because his school had two staircases. One was an up staircase and one was a down staircase. And he'd gotten busted sneaking down the up staircase. And he gave this speech to the class, but then he gave it to his like school board and he actually got it changed. And it was like, it was it was such a, you'd never be able to Google that. You know, half the, yeah, the students exactly. are like, you know, oh, I'm going to do mine on littering or cigarettes or something. Yeah. And they just, it's, it's so uninspired. But this was really a kid looking at his world, trying to figure out what needs to change. Yeah. And man, it was really impressive to me. And I walked away going, that was great. You know, something I saw in like, this was my junior year in high school. We went to the Flagstaff tournament. That mm -hmm. was the season opener that year. So this was September of October of 1999. And I was in an oratory round and this girl, I don't know who she was. I don't know what school she went to, but she did an oratory on how, and this is 1999. It's pre, pre smartphones, mm -hmm. obviously pre, pre, pre smartphones, pre cell phone. Really? But, I mean like pretty close pretty much for all, for, for yeah. our purposes. Yeah. She did a, an oratory, which has a persuasive bent. She did an oratory on why we need to take more photographs of each other. Oh, wow. And I wonder if that fed into later this thing about getting your relatives on tape. Huh. Maybe that was like planted the seed. Yeah. Like we need to n remember where we came from in a tangible way. Not just and the whole, you know, it's not just about like the, the great leaders, Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King. It's about your own grandparents, right. and the neighborhoods that they remember and the things that used to be there that are no longer there. That stuff matters. Sure. And uh, 
whatever the inspiration for that speech was, that's definitely the most off the wall thing I ever saw huh. or ever did. That has to whatever inspired that has to be the most like, wait a second. Whoa. <laughs> we got something here. Yeah, I like that. Cooking with gas. Yeah. That kind of segues nicely into number six. Has a speech has a speech ever caused you to change? Maybe that girl's speech. Yeah. Like taking more photos. Do you find yourself taking more photos? Man, my my sister makes fun of me all the time because I take whenever I like whenever we would have a disposable camera, I would just burn it. Yeah. Or like we would go on vacation. And burn would, through it. You mean not literally yeah, burn it, but yeah, like yeah, burn yeah. through it. Burn through it. Yeah. Or like we'd see a whale. We were on a boat whale watching, and you you come back and you get the film developed, and two weeks later, and there's just like eighteen photos of this whale. <laughs> And I would just get mocked for that. Or like a herd of buffalo in Colorado. There's just like 30 photos of these buffalo. And so, yeah. You're feeling it, man. The answer, to your, it. The answer to your question is yes. I take a lot of photos. Uh, or at least that's my predisposition. Let me, let me think a minute. Um, oh, you know what? There was a, an ADS that Melanie Messer did. Um, and this would have been, this was the Kansas Nationals. No, Nebraska. Manhattan, Kansas, at K-State, and she was in the semi of ADS uh, with Chris Conklin and Ryan Hubble and Dan Hatley doing maybe his best work, um, and two people who I, with apologies, cannot remember. But Melanie Messer's speech was about, how, was about wearing flats at tournaments, because there's a lot of pressure on competitors uh, hmm. who are women to uh, wear, wear heels, yeah. to wear heels. And um, it was just a speech about that, about how, and this is like, uh, to me, it was a little more, uh, I never saw Audrey Mink's ADS about how women should be allowed to wear pantsuits uh-huh. and like without commentary sure. from the peanut gallery or on ballots. Um, that speech won nationals in 2004 on her home turf uh, when she won Pentath. And... Um, uh, Melanie Messer's speech was about wearing f- flats and uh, for the next like two or three or four years I would write on ballots uh, for women just so you know you don't have to wear heels if you don't want to I like that and because I re- it was really it was really hard you know she was like she obviously meant it and it, like all of her arguments were just solid gold, huh. solid gold. There, I remember she had this one joke. She was like, um, "When the body experiences pain, our natural reaction is to allay that pain. When you are running and you get winded, you start to walk. When you are um, when you're cooking on the stove and you feel something hot on your hand, you move your hand. You move the pan. When you when we are drinking." and we start to feel sick, we switch to beer. <laughs> so why then, with this foot deforming, ankle soreening, muscle uh, cramping device, do we just keep wearing it? And pretend that And pretend that normal. it doesn't hurt. Right. Yeah, and pretend that there's some ancillary benefit. Uh, and, you know, that was the, that was, that's the summary of the speech right there. That's great. Uh, and that doesn't even talk about the sexism, you know, the, the, sure. the way that like the shoe was invented. Well, the way that the shoe was invented, oh. what the shoe is meant to do. Um, it doesn't even address those issues. But like, yeah, like that's the bottom line. That's interesting. It is interesting. And I like that it was, I mean, it, you've got a female who's giving the speech and it's made such an impact on 
a male and I've never seen you wear high heels. So I'm assuming you did not wear them before that. Uh, Correct. Probably not after that either. But that's interesting that that would have an impact on you. Well, it's, I mean, it's... It's something you really hadn't experienced. 100%. And it, it's, it's just, it's, people make fun of, uh, or older people do. I don't know if actual people do who want to live in the world. Um, but people make fun of uh, wokeness and social justice warriors and stuff like that. But um, it really is eye-opening, the amount of stuff that other people go through that you have no idea about, or at least I have no idea about. Sure. And so to me, it's really, it's really easy to be fascinated by this in the same way, uh, not to trivialize it, but in the same way that you get interested in the Marvel universe or Star Wars mm. or like the Dune universe. It's just like a bunch of stuff that you had never considered before. And it's this whole wide world full of characters and obstacles and, uh, you know, mystical stuff. And like, that's almost what it's like to, when you hear about like, uh, you know, a woman walking from the train to her house like all the stuff that goes through her head, depending on what type of day it is. Or like if being trans and being at work, and all the stuff that you have to do. Or like what it's like to wake up in the morning and be black and then go from your house to the subway to work, mm. to out to lunch, back to the subway, back to your house. Like uh, it, it, it's, it's not a mythology because it's real, uh, but it has that fascinating quality of mm. like, I cannot believe that life is so this different. This is what's going on. Yeah. That like right under my eyes, even though like I, I don't feel like I'm actively perpetrating uh, these things on these people. It's like, this is just, this is just wild. This is just so, so um, in a dark way, mesmerizing mm. to hear about this stuff. And that, you know, the shoe thing is the tip of the iceberg. Absolutely. But it's that same kind of interest that you can really get uh, captivated by. All right. Question number seven. What did you do with your awards? They're at my parents' house. All of them? Yes. Hmm. It's funny, you know, uh, I had David Hale on here for episode one. He threw all of them away. I think it's interesting how some people are just like, whatever. Other people are like, oh, let's keep everything. They're different states of disarray. It's, I don't know. I find that very fascinating. Well, he people... only had like six of them. Uh, he probably did it on accident. Zing. <laughs> Zing, zing, zing. All right, number eight. What's, what speech skill do you most use, most often use in your day-to-day -day life? Organization. In what way? Uh, when I'm, so like on this podcast, I've had like opportunities to say I have four things to say about this. Mm. Let me try and get through those and remember what those are. I like that. Stuff like that. Just making, uh, make, uh, organization is just making a quick list of the things that you want to say. That. I and, used that. And then following through, yes. which leads nicely into number nine. Why didn't you quit? Uh, I didn't quit between high school and college because I went to college to do this. And I did that because I felt like I was good, but not good enough. And I wasn't ready to leave it behind yet. Mm. I didn't, I thought about quitting between freshman and sophomore year for at least for of a college. Year. Yes. At least for a year to try and catch up with engineering stuff. Um, but I didn't because, uh, I guess I figured out that I would finish on time and it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, I didn't quit between sophomore and junior year cause I won a title and I was just really rolling and I didn't quit between junior and senior year. I mean that, that whole like two and a half years is just blurs together. All right. Question number 10. Oh, and I should add like, uh, I really thought we could win nationals. So that was yeah. just. That was just the goal after Mississippi. That was the goal to win. Yes. And like 
summer, junior year, summer, senior year. That's all one block Big of time. Chunk, yeah. That's one long day where right. the sun rose and set 860 times. That's just one period of time. I feel you. I understand that. What's, this is question number 10. What's the best piece of advice you've received about a speech? You've already mentioned one. The poetry the, the poetry, poetry is like this. Up and down, up and down, up and down. That's, I mean, that's, that's acting advice too. Like it, not everything has to conform. Mm-hmm. That's really good advice. Um, Marianne Palmisano, uh, formerly of George Mason University. Um, she was a champion there. That, that was pre-Pober GMU, by the way. That was Bruce Manchester's GMU team, not Peter Pober's. Um, that wrecking crew of Palmasano, Holly Sisk, Nance Reif, um, and I'm sure a couple of people I'm forgetting, but that, that team was mean. Um, Marianne Palmasano coached us for a year or two, and she was like, if you want to set yourself apart in limited prep you need to concentrate on the microstructure which is what i now call internal structure which is just saying i'm going to talk about this subpoint and this subpoint i am the i'm the only person who asked for that at mount sac and i was or at least when i was there and i have some confidence that i'm the only person who emphasizes that on the campuses i teach at now and it's there's just something about it that i find uh, reassuring or comforting, um, or, you know, regimented or easier to understand or something. But like, that was really good advice because it, it just pushed me to think about speech. It's speech as with more focus Mm -hmm. and more, um, um, I don't know, a plum. (laughs) alacrity i don't know uh but that was the the poetry thing really really stands out and that thing really really stands out that's good advice well aj this brings us to the end man man you're you're like a a good connector to different eras of speech you know what i mean like you you remember so much you know so many people and you've been involved for so long that's really great to have you in here and talk about things um if anybody has any uh any questions or they want to reach out to us you can reach us at forensic podcast on twitter and instagram so you can uh, slide into our dms over there uh you can uh tell a friend about us and uh, reach us on patreon help keep uh help keep the podcast going AJ, thanks so much for coming down. I appreciate it. All right, so until the next round, keep talking, and as AJ says, focus on the microstructure. I'm from an actress. Oh, you're acting now, because it's